Welcome to episode 5 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you again to everyone who's taken the time to share our posts on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you also for all the great feedback from last week's show. Please do keep sending your feedback as it really does help us to improve and grow. Please do take the time to visit our social media pages and the two main places you can interact with us are on our Facebook and Twitter pages where you can find us under the name Conroy Pod. So that's www.facebook.com forward slash Conroy Pod and www.twitter.com forward slash Conroy Pod. You can also leave comments for us on our SoundCloud page, where these episodes are hosted. And you can also download the episodes by visiting www.conroypod.vze.com. On that website, I've also uploaded some pictures of some of the people that I've talked about on these episodes. And I'll be updating that as we talk about more and more different people. Again... That's www.conroypod.vze.com If you enjoy the show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others. And we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. This week, we have the second part of an absolutely incredible interview with our guest, Spinner McKenzie and you really won't want to miss what he's got to say this week. But more about all of that later. Before that though, it's time for the first of our regular features. Short Stories Yes, it's time, once again, for Short Stories. For anyone listening for the first time, this section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr. John Short. Again, if you're new to the show, for a bit more of a background on John, please do go back and listen to episode 1, as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John across the length and breadth of Britain and worked on many, many shows with him. He's actually someone I think the world of, even if you might not necessarily think so listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way. So, as I've mentioned before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy much, but to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. He's a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories, 
just to make that clear. Our short story this week takes place in February 2003, which was the first time I ever did a long distance road trip with John. In the car with John on this occasion were myself, Stu Oddy Odyssey, and CSF promoter The Eliminator, Stu Nat. We were heading north to Scotland for the first ever set of shows run by a promotion called BCW, British Championship Wrestling, which at that time was owned and run by the Highlander, Colin Mackay, along with his brother, Graham. Just to repeat what I said in episode 3 regarding talking about Colin. In 2012, for those who don't know, he was arrested and jailed for some rather unpleasant things. I have absolutely no intention of discussing any of that stuff on this show because firstly I don't think it's the right place to do so and secondly, out of respect for the people who were affected by all of that, I I just don't feel it's right. But after thinking about it, I came to the conclusion that it is okay to talk about other instances where Colin was involved. Things that happened before that time and which are completely unrelated to what happened later on. I just feel like I need to put that out there so that if I do mention his name from time to time, people don't think that I'm deliberately just ignoring the very serious things that happened just for the sake of telling an anecdote. Rest assured that I absolutely do not in any way condone what Colin did, but I do feel okay about mentioning his name from time to time in a completely different context. I hope that sort of clarifies where I stand on all of that. Anyway, the two stews had already been picked up by John further south. This was before the days of meets at Bromsgrove Station, which would later become our regular meeting point for trips up north with John. So I was due to be picked up instead at Frankly Services on the M5, just to the west of Birmingham. Not the easiest of places to get to for a non-driver, but I just about made it courtesy of a very expensive early morning taxi journey. As it turned out, that was the only way to get there. When I got to the services, I phoned one of the other guys travelling in the car, to see where they were. They told me that they were in the car park, so I looked around for them, and looked, and looked, and I couldn't find them anywhere, so I phoned back and said I couldn't find them. It was then that we realised that I'd actually been dropped off on the southbound side of the services, when in fact we were actually heading north, so they were across the other side of the motorway from me. At that time there was no bridge connecting the two sides of the services and I wasn't having much luck in trying to find a way of getting across there. Eventually I spotted a bridge a short distance further along the road and this seemed to be the only option for getting across to the other side. Unfortunately the only way to get up there from where I was seemed to be to climb up a very steep bank of wet muddy grass with my luggage remember and swing myself across to and over the top of the bridge, some 30 or so feet above the road, like a much fatter and less nimble Tarzan. You can probably already guess that this failed miserably, and I subsequently slipped and went tumbling down the muddy hill 
all the way to the bottom, followed by my suitcase. Thankfully though, just as I was starting to contemplate another trip up the muddy hill, somehow, and probably completely illegally, John had managed to find some kind of works access road from the northbound side, coming over to the southbound services where, caked in mud and pretty fucking fed up, I made my way back along to. We finally managed to get going after re-entering the works access road and attracting the attention of some very official looking people when we headed back across to the northbound side again. Suitably lambasted for my escapades at the meet, after we got a decent way up the road we made a proper services stop. We all headed off for the toilet before coming back and sitting down at a table in Burger King. I'd already got some stuff with me for the journey, so I didn't get anything, but the others did. Odds and Natty had just unwrapped their meals and were about to take the first bites when John turned up, sat down, and, merry as you like, took out his false teeth and plonked them down on the table. Without skipping a beat, he then began gumming his burger into oblivion, all the while practising his best face for the World Gurning Championships, and putting not only everyone at our table off their food, but also the people at the two neighbouring tables, who quickly made an exit. Somewhat understandably after that, we decided to leave food for a bit until later in the journey. So, after John had been for a leak and a clear out, we got back on the road again. After some cheery banter, and Natty constantly referring to John as Grandad, which was beginning to annoy him, we reached the Scottish border, which prompted Natty to exclaim, Oh, we're in Scotland then. Stinks, doesn't it? After a while, we managed somehow to take a wrong turning, which resulted in us getting completely and utterly lost somewhere in the middle of rural Ayrshire. After about an hour of driving round aimlessly, looking for some semblance of civilization so we could try and work out where the hell we were, we came across a small village. At this point of the journey, the banter had settled down a little bit, and for once, me, Natty and Odd were having a very nice, very civilised conversation, maybe about tea or crumpets or curtains or something very run-of-the-mill anyway. All of a sudden, John then, completely out of the blue, piped up with the line, Oh yeah, I like gangbangs. Which prompted one of those, did he actually say what I think he just said, moments between the three of us. The fact that it was so out of the blue, and so completely unrelated to whatever it was we'd been talking about, made it a pretty unsettling few minutes, to be honest and I've often wondered from that day to this what on earth he thought the conversation we'd been having was. We finally managed to locate where we were on the map, and managed to get ourselves to East Kilbride, where we would be staying for the next few days in Collins Flat, along with about a hundred other people. Or at least that's the way it seemed. Having been up a few times before and stayed there, I managed to get us as far as Calderwood, the district of East Kilbride where the flat was. But I then got a bit stuck and we had to pull over and phone Colin. I described where we were 
and he said we were only five minutes along the road so he would come and meet us. So we waited and 20 minutes later there was no sign of Colin. I phoned him again and he said he'd be with us in a minute so again we waited. After another 20 minutes there was still no sign of him. After a long day's driving and putting up with twats like us John was getting a bit ratty by this stage, to the point where, after a few more minutes had gone by, he said, Right, I'll give him five more minutes and then I'm going home, I think. Yeah, that would have been a really worthwhile 18 hours driving, John. Anyway, Colin eventually turned up to meet us and all was well. We got to the flat, had a chat with everyone who was already there and grabbed some food. Sean Harkin who was a BCW trainee at the time, continued the John Short-esque, completely random replies to unrelated conversations by answering the question, How old are you now, Sean? simply with the words, Gammon Steak, which left everyone in the flat as baffled as we had been in the car with John earlier, during Gangbang Gate. Anyway, there were originally meant to be three shows on the run, but shortly before we travelled up, we learned that the middle show, which was scheduled to be in Inverurie, had been cancelled because of the lack of an entertainment's licence. BCW's lack of organisation during the entire time I worked for them, until 2007, was staggering. Nothing demonstrated this better than, firstly, the visiting Americans on the tour being flown in without the right documentation, which resulted in them nearly being sent straight back to the States before the shows even began, with only the connections of Stu Penders, who was also one of the trainees at BCW at the time, and just by chance and good luck happened to be one of the people sent to the airport to pick them up, and the fact that his dad had previously worked as security in the airport, saving the day. Then, secondly... Once the show in Inverurie had been cancelled, Colin had neglected to book somewhere for the Americans and Doug Williams et al. to stay, which resulted in driving around Glasgow in a minibus until gone two in the morning looking for somewhere with vacancies. The first stop on the mini tour was Perth at the City Hall, which was a beautiful venue and would be absolutely brilliant when full. I imagine. Unfortunately, with Colin having neglected to do any publicity in Perth itself, instead having people put out a few posters in Dundee about 20 miles away, we ended up with about 30 people in, most of whom were there because of two of the trainees on the show. There were a handful of genuine punters there though, one of whom was a somewhat rotund man who looked like a stay-puffed Bob Carrollgees, and who, along with his young son, turned up before the doors opened and kept bugging John Short about helping him with various things during the show. John kept telling him that he didn't need any help, but the guy just wasn't taking no for an answer, and kept on bugging him, suggesting more and more things he could do. Eventually, I think just for a bit of peace, John agreed that the guy could sit at the edge of his table at ringside and help him with the raffle. The guy started off at the edge of the table, but 
as the night went on, whenever John left to go in the ring or do whatever else he was doing, the guy moved his chair further and further over, to the point that by the end of the show he had completely taken over John's table and it was now John that had been forced out to sit at the side of the table, which we all found pretty funny. I mentioned on a previous episode about working with former WWF star The Barbarian on these shows, and he was my opponent on the show in Perth, along with Colin, as I teamed with Colossus, formerly known as Tiger Steel, who was the other visiting American on this set of shows. I've said it before, but Barbarian, or Sioni as we called him, was someone whose reputation as a tough guy preceded him. He also carried a reputation, whether it was true or not, for getting into fights and smashing up hotel rooms, etc. That reputation, however, couldn't have been further from what we experienced on them BCW shows, as he was genuinely one of the nicest men I've ever met in my life. He was absolutely cool as a cucumber, and so laid back, even when everything was going tits up, as it invariably did at shows. And he was one of those stuck driving round Glasgow at two in the morning after the Perth show as Colin frantically searched for a hotel or B&B. They eventually gave up trying to find anywhere and Sione, Big Jeff and Doug Williams were shunted off to stay at Henry, one of the BCW trainees at the time's flat, in Airdrie. I think Doug ended up sleeping on the floor, and I'm not sure where the other two ended up, but far from luxurious conditions in any case. While many of the crew had been driving around in the minibus, a few others of us had been sat in John Short's car outside Colin's flat in East Kilbride for several hours, waiting for Colin to come back and let us in. I think probably the most frustrating part of sitting there outside the block of flats for hours was the fact that we knew Colin always left his flat unlocked, as I don't think the lock worked properly for some reason. The problem was we couldn't get into the actual block of flats itself. After having sat there for several hours, Natty finally got fed up and solved the problem for us by simply going and practically ripping the door off its hinges, with his Hulk smash brute force. So, with a potential breaking and entering charge hanging in the air, we quickly headed inside. The lack of organisation, and the conditions generally, meant that lots of people on the shows were unhappy. So, Justin Richards was nominated to be the spokesman for the boys, and put the grievances to Colin. The upshot was that Colin agreed, under duress, to take us all for a slap-up breakfast the following morning, and foot the bill, which we all agreed was a a reasonable peace offering. Breakfast time came the following morning, and we all bundled into various cars, and headed off to the food court in the East Kilbride shopping centre. When we got there, Colin told us that he needed to go to the cash machine, to get the money to pay for all of our breakfasts, so to just order and pay, and he would reimburse us all individually. Unfortunately, Colin couldn't bear to tear himself away from the Americans and Doug for two minutes to go to the cash machine, 
so he offered to buy us dinner that night instead, which we agreed to. The fact that Colin wouldn't be footing the bill for breakfast, though, didn't stop Natty from ordering an entire family-sized meal just for himself, which included five portions of chicken, five lots of fries, five desserts and five drinks. He finished it all as well. Well, all apart from one piece of half-eaten chicken which he casually just chucked blindly in the direction of the adjoining ice rink, declaring, Don't want that bit. In hindsight, I imagine Colin wished that he'd taken a couple of minutes away from kissing the two Americans' asses and just paid for breakfast instead, as the evening meal ended up costing him upwards of 500 quid. He booked a long table with about 20 places or so at the Stewart Hotel, next to the shopping centre in East Kilbride, where they had a Chinese restaurant. What Colin didn't seem to realise when he booked the table, though, was that he had to pay for all 20 places, at 20 quid each, regardless of whether or not there was actually anyone sat in those 20 places. From memory, there were probably about sort of 12 to 14 of us sat at the table, enjoying our for-gratis meals. Regardless of the empty places at the table, though, Colin wouldn't allow some of the other members of the team to join us, which didn't exactly improve his popularity amongst either those people or us, especially as some of them had been working really hard over the previous couple of days to help on the shows. Instead, those people had to go and get a chippy a couple of doors down and watch through the window, waiting for us in the freezing cold. We duly showed our appreciation for Colin by not exactly skimping on the drinks, which weren't included in the £20 a head deal, and making sure that they were included in Colin's bill. John then buggered off to get the autographs of two drunk women who had just finished singing on the karaoke. In the days that followed, John also continued his endless search for Orkney Fudge, this time around some of the rougher parts of Glasgow. He also managed to suffer a similar fate to me at the initial meet, when he slipped down a steep bank after stopping to look at an old speedway track somewhere, and as Natty so eloquently put it, got covered in weasel shit, all down the back of his coat and trousers. John also kept repeating a few now much-loved and much-quoted phrases, such as There may be snow on the roof, but there's logs in the fire. Which he must have said about 30 times over the course of the few days we were there. The final show of the run was in Barhead, on the southwest side of Glasgow. And playing basketball on the afternoon of the show in the sports centre with Sioni and Big Jeff is a fun memory to look back on. John managed to create a moment of absolute comedy gold after the show. He was getting changed and picked up his jacket to put it on, when what must have been at least a hundred quid in small change all tipped out of his pockets and went absolutely everywhere, all around the dressing room, which made him angrier than I think I've ever seen him before. And he shouted, OH FUCKING SHIT! at the top of his voice, looking like he was going to spontaneously combust. After I'd helped him pick it all up, we said our goodbyes and started the journey back down south. It had been a fairly tiring few days, 
so we were all a bit knackered and didn't really feel much like chatting on the way back. We put the radio on for a bit of an alternative and 2468 Motorway by the Tom Robinson band was playing and whenever I hear that song it always reminds me of that few days and that little run of shows. We did make a stop off at the infamous Holly's Transport Cafe on the A5, otherwise known as Greasy Lills, which was a well-known stop off within the wrestling fraternity. The cheap and plentiful grub, the numbered doors upstairs and the multitude of gratified sounds coming from within them should probably explain why, and everything a decadent heart could possibly desire could be found within even though John fervently denies any knowledge of it being a knocking shop. After beating off half a million flies in the cafe, not like that, we left that to the girls upstairs, we made the most of the fresh early morning air before getting back in John's car and heading the rest of the way home. So that was short stories for this week. Next week... I'll be talking about some of my experiences whilst out postering with John, which is an experience all of itself. More about that next week. We now have some absolutely shameless plugs for you, but stay tuned because after that we'll have part two of our exclusive interview with Spinner McKenzie. Don't go away. I know you're going to dig this. Seconds Away, It's Night Time is run by former wrestler Stevie Knight and his longtime associate Richard Youngy Young, who have both been friends of mine for a long time now. The show features interviews with many of the top stars from the glory days of British wrestling, as well as with some modern day wrestlers, and is really, really well worth a listen. You can find them at www.twitter.com forward slash secondsawaypod. And the other podcast I'd like to give a shout to at this time is Because WCW, run by the twisted genius Dean Ayas and his co-host Liam Happ. Their show focuses on reviewing WCW pay-per-views and TV shows, and is also really, really well worth a listen to. You can find them at www.twitter.com forward slash Because WCW. Definitely do check out those two fantastic shows. You will absolutely love them. It's now time for the second part of our interview with Spinner McKenzie. Last week we spoke with Spinner about the early days of his wrestling career. And if you haven't already heard that one, please do go back and check out episode 4 of this show. We pick up the conversation this week by talking about Spinner's time working for Max Crabtree in the late 80s and early 90s. So, going back to when you were working for Max, who was there when you first got there? Uh, so, Richie Brooks, Drew McDonald, George Burgess, uh, Barry Douglas, there would have been Kid McCoy and King Ben on some of the shows, Little Prince, Greg or Scott, Max's own lads, would have been in there as well, with Shirley uh-huh. as well. So we'd always travel in the minibus with them. So the way Max worked it was, you would get meat money 
So if the meet was at Ernie Baldwin's, which is on the M62, you would get £2 each in your pay packet extra for your petrol money to get you from Leeds to Ernie Baldwin's. Right. And if it was at Sowerby Bridge, you would get £3. And what we used to do is we'd take it in turns going out. So Richie would come and pick me up and I would give him a £2 and other people. So he might get £8 at the end of the night for his petrol, which was good money for petrol back then. You know I mean? Yeah. You, you were easy, something like 7 or £8 a 100. So it was, it was decent money. And it was only a few miles out to the meet. Barry Douglas would take turns at it as well and, and, and so that. But once you got to the meet, you would leave your car there. You would get in Max's minibus and we all had our place in the minibus. We all sat in the same seat every single time. And he would head off at 50 mile an hour. And it didn't matter where you were going. He would head off at 50 mile an hour. So we could go from Sowerby Bridge down to Weymouth. And we'd leave at like 10 o'clock in the morning. We'd get to Weymouth for 6 o'clock at night. We would leave the show at half past nine. Because we'd always have one of the local team doing the last match. And we would drive back to Sowerby Bridge. We'd get to Sowerby Bridge about three, between three and half three, maybe four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Drive back home, have a few hours kip, change over the bag, back to the meet and drive to Eastbourne. Uh-huh. He would not stop over. Even though it was just along the coast, it was there and back every single night. Right. 50 mile an hour. Same people. Day after day after day. And this is seven days a week. 30, 31 days a month. So travelling specifically at 50 miles now, was that to save on the fuel, you know, the fuel consumption? Uh, pass. I'm not sure whether this was Max playing a rib on us because he knew he had all these guys raging that mm. they were sat in this bus. And if you can imagine, he would be travelling down the motorway and he would see a car coming on at the slip road and he would slow down to let them on. You know, and he wouldn't stop at the services or anything like that. You were uh-huh. really struggling from to stop for a pee and everything. It was funny, Max. He was really funny. And like him and Shirley would sit in the front and the Brian would be sat behind them. He would have the three seats behind them. And then we would all be in the back of the bus away from Brian and that. And uh, Shirley and Max used to chat and Brian <laughs> didn't get involved in the chat at all. He'd just sit there and chuckle to himself and entertain himself. He's a strange guy, Brian. He was one of these divisive type people. You thought you were getting along with him and he was trying to stab you in the back at the same right. time. Yeah, yeah, I've met yeah. a few of them. Yeah, He got me sacked, Brian. Well, he didn't. He thought he got me sacked. So we were at a show, I think it was Jedburgh. All week I had been doing on first with Mike Weaver in a three-man knockout. So me and Mike Weaver and then on last with Shaky doing the, the villain match with Shaky at the end. And Brian came in and said something. I didn't quite catch what he was saying, but he was changing it around. And uh, I said something to Brian. I can't remember what I said, but he stormed off. And next thing, George Bod just came to me and said, look, Brian's just said that he's got it in for you, that you better watch your back. I said, has he? So I went storming out and found him, and I got him against the wall. I said, you think you're going to fucking have my back? Do you think you're going to get me done in? And uh, Shirley came out of the dressing room because he could hear me shouting. And he said, uh, just let him go, Alan. He said, uh, bring him in here. So he went into the dressing room with Shirley. Next thing I get the nod from Max to come and see him at the pay box. I think, here we go. This is my card here. 
So I went round and Max said, uh, kid, uh, come and see me in the office tomorrow. He had an office in Andrew Wisco's house in Round in Leeds. So I went to see him in the office that next morning thinking, yeah, that's my date sheet gone. Where's Brian's telephone number? <laughs> and uh, he said, kid, you can't hold me responsible for what my brother does. How would £5 extra a night be? Well, I'm like, I said to Max, I'll hold them against the wall every night if you keep giving me a fiver extra. <laughs> and yeah, he gave me a pay rise and we kept going. But Brian was like that. He was hot and cold. If you imagine, you've got the same guys travelling together seven days a week and there's no outside influences. Yeah. Because when you get home, you're in bed, you get up, you make your sandwiches and your stuff you know, for travelling and you clean your bag and put your new gear in and head off again. So you're not meeting other people. So there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. So by day seven, you've run out of stuff to say. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting for hours staring out a window. And I smoked at that time as well. So I'd be sat right at the back seat in the bus with a wee window so I could have my fag and smoke out the window. Uh-huh. And uh, it was hard, hard going. I ended up addicted to Valium at that point because what we'd do is we'd get in the bus in the morning, I would take 20 mil of Valium and go to sleep, wake up when we got to the hall, do the job, get back in the bus, have my tea and then take 20 mil of Valium wake up at the meeting, get back home again. And I did get addicted to them at that point. I mean, thankfully, that was the only drug addiction I've ever had in my life. But it was hard doing. And I can understand how some of the Americans, with the distances they have to travel, yeah, have got addicted to painkillers and drugs. I feel for them because people don't understand what it's like to do that journey day after day after day. And then suddenly when you get to that hall you have to perform at 100%. Uh-huh. Imagine you drive all that way down to Weymouth and you get to Weymouth and the local guys are all like, ah, how are you doing? How's everything that? <laughs> and you're like, fuck off. Just go away. And you don't want to speak to him because you're so, so miserable after yeah. that journey down. And then, you know, once that shows the quarters of the way through, they're half an hour from their bed. Yeah. You're going to be back in that bus. And this was before the time of mobile phones when you could sit and watch Netflix and all that type of stuff in the journey, it was just you, you in a book. <laughs> yes. Now, I can relate to that. As you know, I spent a month in Canada, and some of the trips out there and doing that every day, it, it does give you a completely different perspective on things, mm-hmm. you know, yep. as opposed to, you know, just turning up, doing an hour's drive, and then you're home at the end. We were living on each other. You know, like, Richard became like my wife. <laughs> you know, because I seen... Richie that much yeah that we were at the back of the bus together we would put all the bags so that we could make a, a double bed and he was the same he would be on the volume as well and, and off he would go and the two of us used to just sleep all the way through uh-huh it was the minibus that actually finished me the first time that i worked for max he gave him my date sheet and i looked at all the jobs and they were all long jobs yeah. and i said to him i said max i'm really sorry i can't do this knowing that every single day that month I'm going to be sat in that minibus. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was great money. Don't get me wrong. It was really good money at that time. And I was putting loads of money in the bank, but I wasn't having a life. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I just said, I'm really sorry, I'm off. And I phoned Brian up and started working for Brian the next day. This was just before he got the Grampian television. Oh, right. Okay. So I wouldn't have done those TV shows anyway, because I didn't want to do the television. 
that's quite happy my own little niche market i know you worked with tony stewart a lot and he's somebody that should probably be talked about more than he is who else did you work with for max so tony yeah tony was out of dave finley's father's amateur gym uh-huh and tony was this exactly the same size as me same body build looked a little bit like me we could probably look like brothers to be honest if max had wanted to put that angle mm-hmm. but tony was a very very fiery irishman you know and he would deliberately pick on a big guy just to have a fight with him it was great fun to be around but he had that very very fiery spirit about him as well but brilliant in the ring and probably if he'd have come along when max had the tv he would have been like kid mccoy uh-huh. and stuff you know he would have been one that max would have put a shine on and promoted him on the tv as the good wholesome young lad yeah you know, I mean, Kid McCoy, I thought, was an absolutely amazing worker. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. I mean, his dad, you know, people used to shy away from working with his dad. His dad could just grind you down. Uh-huh. You know, King Ben. There were certain matches that Max would put on for the boys to watch. So King Ben and Little Prince, you would sit and watch them struggle with each other. They wouldn't want <laughs> to sell for each other. Yeah. And it would be a fight. And you can watch these on YouTube. King Ben and Kilby. Mm-hmm. You know, any of those three in that combination would be a complete struggle. And I worked with all three of them, and I got on great with them. You know, I done their stuff, and they would do stuff for me, and it was an easy night. I I, I used to think, why do people want to make it so hard for these guys? You know, they're easy to work with. Yeah. But it is horses for courses. People build up a reputation in this job, and when you hear that you're going on with them, they think, oh, geez, oh. He's going to try and stiff me. He's going to cut me off here. He's not going to want to sell for me. Uh-huh. Instead of just thinking, I'm going to go and work with this guy, you know, and we'll have a good match. You know why King Ben and Mark came out of the business? Uh, no. So they were at Worthing. And this story, you can check it out. You know, Blondie will confirm this because he was actually there. They were working with uh, Blondie and Kendo Nagasaki. And they went in the dressing room to work out the match. And uh, Kendall said something that Ben took offence to. So Ben said to Blondie, don't worry, just keep yourself out. And he'd done naggers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He walloped him. And uh, naggers slipped out under the bottom rope, ran into the dressing room, locked the door. And uh, that was the end. No more King Ben. And Mark said, well, if you're not going to use my dad... I'm leaving as well. And fair play to Mark for standing by his dad, you know. Yeah. I mean, he would have had a brilliant job. He really would have been one of the top guys if he'd have stopped. But he said no, you know. And I fully understand why Ben done Kendall, you know. He wasn't the nicest of people. Uh And he abused his position on the show. I'll tell you another story about him. When Brian brought over the Cuban assassin to work on his show's the first night we were at Stoke and the Cuban assassin had brought his wife over, his, his manager, and they're in the dressing room and Kendo had gone in and said, this is my dressing room, you'll need to get out. And uh, this guy had said, what do you mean? And Kendo said, this is my dressing room, get out. And they picked Kendo up off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I think he was a hard man in his day, but his day was done. 
Yeah. You know, and because of that, he abused his position on the show. You know, he manipulated people to get what he wanted. And his gimmick was over with. You know, I mean, I see him doing stuff now in the shows and I think to myself, this gimmick finished when you killed it yourself, uh-huh. when you took your own mask off on television, you know, and why he wanted to try and relive it. I mean, MD can get the heat by throwing salt, wiggling a sword and poking people in the eyes. You know, it's, it's not difficult to do what he was doing. Mm-hmm. What was difficult was that whole Kendo persona. Yeah. So if he'd have kept the mask on, then yeah, the gimmick would have lived. But no, it finished for me when he took the mask off himself. Everybody know who he was. Well, I mean, for years he kept up that whole thing of never talking and certainly never breaking kayfabe and talking about his wrestling career. I mean, with his book coming out more recently, he's actually started to open up about things. I mean, what's what's your take on all of that? Uh, I'm not sure whether it's just to keep himself relevant. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, what is he? He's probably in his 80s now. Got to be, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought so, yeah. You know. When we'd done the shows, he had his own dressing room and it was invitation only. Uh-huh. Didn't get in that dressing room without an invite, you know, and... I've seen lots of guys getting kicked about because, you know, he didn't want them in the dressing room. Mm -hmm. He also would control the running of the show. So if you were getting too much heat, he would get that changed, you know, and that's the type of grip that he had on the promoter. Uh He didn't want people to get the show before him. Like, he is the top of the bill and he has a place to be top of the bill, but he should be able to do the top of the bill match. Yeah, You know, he gets paid to be top of the bill. I don't think he should be worrying about what's coming before him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, his gimmick. It was an interesting time with him. You know, I, see, I only knew him when the gimmick was over and done with and he was trying to revive it again. Yeah. And, and he was in with Brian for that, you know. Yeah, he was a strange man. Strange, strange man. Going back to talking about comparing All-Star with Max's shows at that time, how would you compare the two in terms of quality at the time that you worked there? So Brian's shows were trying to be not American, but Americanized. Yeah. So he had the majority of the names. He had Dave Finlay, he had Rocco, he had Kendo, he had Danny Collins, Frank Cullen... Brookside, who he built up into being a big star on his circuit. But Max still had Shirley. So Stax was with Brian as well. And Max had made his shows around Shirley so that he knew Shirley couldn't leave him. And that's why I think Max was clever enough to build his empire around his brother. Because any other person that had been built up had moved. You know, they had got themselves to a position where they were making money, they were really, really well known and somebody was offering them more money so they moved and that's fine, you know, I mean, everybody gets promoted and changes jobs and stuff like that, but Max built a core in the later years round about him, so, you know, like myself Tony Stewart, Richie uh, Drew came in and out, so Drew would go and work for Oreg, so he wasn't on every show, Uh, Barry Douglas Jamaica George Shaky, when Shaky came back out of prison, he came to work with us as well. Jimmy Ocean 
worked for mm-hmm. Max for a while as well before he went back down to Norwich and started doing the Superflies. So there was a core that always worked, and it was the same. You know, he would bring in people to fill in the show wherever he was going. And yeah. normally, if it's a long show, there would be an end-of-the-night match, which would be two local guys, and we all worked together. It was hard because we were all travelling together and stuff like that, but I learned loads. You know, like Barry Douglas, he's a machine. You know, you go yeah. in there at, like, 50 years old, and you couldn't blow him up. It didn't matter what you did to him. You could not get him out of air. Jamaica George, who was like six foot four tall, and I'd go in and work with him, five foot eight, and I'd have to work villain on him. And he would lie down on the floor and he'd give me his big leg. And it took all my strength to hold this leg up. (laughs) (laughs) And he would be lying on the floor laughing. You know, (laughs) some really strange things I remember at times about those shows. You know, like Richie would say to me, throw me in and drop kick me. And I would go up for a drop kick and he would come off the ropes that fast and that hard to connect with my drop kick to make me go backwards through the air on my drop kick. <laughs> so he's not going to sell it. He's just going to block it. And it's like a train coming towards you. You suddenly stop and start going flying backwards. And you're like, what's he doing? You know, <laughs> it's just, just daft things like that, you know, that we did to tickle ourselves. Before the tag, it was an hour's wrestling match. And you were going, you know, Brian would do the rounds. Some of them would be eight or nine minutes long. So Richie and I would be in there and we'd just head made each other over, sit on the floor and we'd stare at Brian, not moving, until he rung the bell. And it was a battle of wills on who would give up first. <laughs> and you think, how can these people that are watching this not understand that we'd have a fight here with the timekeeper? You know, oh. and they're looking at their watches as well, thinking, get the tag on. Come on, hurry up. I've been in that position where Max has said, I want you to get a slow hand clap doing yeah. the rest of the match before the tag. And you've had to go out there and just bore and bore and bore them and get them slow hand clapping. And that's yeah. a complete, <laughs> oh, that's a level of that. I enjoyed doing the daddy tags. As daft as that sounds, they were funny. And they were funny because it was a set routine that you were doing. Shirley had all these moves that he did, you know, like the Tom and Jerry and all that type of stuff. And he used to moan like fuck when the villains messed it up. But he wouldn't be quiet about it. He would moan and he'd be shouting, the fucked it again, Max, the fucked it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, you'd be laughing, you'd be laughing your head off. And people like Anaconda, I don't know if you remember him. Yeah. He was a huge, big lad, you know, but stumbled everywhere. He just stumbled his way. He shouldn't have been in the job, but he just stumbled his way through the job. I'm trying to think who else would be in the daddy tag, especially if they're in a mask. He would turn the mask round so they wouldn't be able to see, you know, and you're trying to be a villain and this guy's <laughs> turning your mask round. They were just really, really funny times. Like when I worked against them, and I still to this day cannot believe that I worked in the daddy tag against daddy. It's still like one of them, like, wow. His thing was he always hit you with a bucket over the head. Uh-huh. And I used to feed in for it and then just drop as he swung round so the bucket would go sailing past my head and he would miss me and he would go, you fucker. Because <laughs> <laughs> he knew I'd got him at it, you know, and he would fall for it every single time. It was really, really good fun, fun <laughs> that way. But yeah, I mean, 
sometimes it was difficult in the tag because you had people coming in to do the tag as the villains that didn't understand what they were actually there to do. And uh-huh. all they were there to do was to take bumps for daddy. Yeah. You know, and they'd be trying to work and daddy didn't want you to work. He didn't yeah. want me to be doing a whole load of flying around before he come tagging in. He wanted them to pummel me so that he could come in and rescue me. Yeah. You know, and I knew I was 100% fine with that. That was easy to do. It was great. Remembering this has moved on because daddy's getting to the end of his career. It's not like the tag matches he had with Dave Finley and Danny and the tag matches as well, where they actually would do some work. Yeah. This was just his little set routine, 10, 12 minutes, and you're out, and that's your finish for the night. And if you do it right, you're not going to get hurt, you're going to get paid well, and you'll look good. Mm-hmm. You know, very simple. But some people just struggled with that. It comes down again, doesn't it, to um, knowing your place within that show. You're not always going to be the guy made to look good. You're going to go up and down. You're there to do whatever the promoter asks you to do. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're there to do a job. Yeah. That's still the same with the WWE. Mm -hmm. You're there to do a job. Yeah. How they want to write your job is different because it is more like Coronation Street and Emmerdale. There's a whole load of acting that has to go around about it, but you're still there to do a job. Yeah. And it's putting that ego in check and realising that. Mm-hmm. Whereas some people, I don't think, were ever able to do that, were they? No. No. I think I was sacked that many times. I didn't have an ego. Because uh-huh. <laughs> when you get sacked, you know that you're crap. <laughs> why would they sack somebody that's good? <laughs> um, Did you ever sack me? No, I wouldn't have dared. Oh, you must be one of the only ones that never sacked me. From there, I went on to do a bit for Scott Conway and Jake. He'd started promoting his own shows as well. And then I gave up with the job and moved back to Scotland. And I had four or five years up here. I got myself a good job and not really thinking about the wrestling anymore. It was just a, a chance that the company I was working for, big engineering company, and I was their IT manager. And I was having to fly up and down to Devonport the naval base Uh to put a network in there and the camps were on so Shaky had phoned me and said look when you're down we're not far at Wall Park down at Torquay Uh, Mm -hmm. I'll come and pick you up and instead of paying for a hotel for the night just come and stop in the park with us and you know spend your dig money on some booze so I thought yeah that's a good idea so I went along and had a night out with, with the lads Jace the Ace uh, James Mason, Justin Hansford, Andy Flyer, Shaky, and we had some right laughs at the bar. I was earning really, really good money, so I could put my hand in the pocket to buy drink for the lads as well, and we had some really good piss-ups. And Jason and I, we were quite good at pulling the women as well, so we had some quite good times there. Uh, and then I met Michelle whilst I was doing the parts, and we got together, and I stupidly, maybe not stupidly, I don't know, I packed in my job and decided that I would invest with Shaky and do some promoting, something that I'd never, ever done before, didn't really understand much about the promoting and what was involved in it. Although I understood about running shows, there's a lot more, as you know, 
to, yeah. to promote an event and mm-hmm. it takes a lot a lot of time yeah to, to, and a lot of the guys don't understand the work that needs to go in behind the scenes to get yeah. to the point where they're stood in the ring doing their own stuff they don't appreciate what's behind it all you know to run like max and brian 30 days a month sometimes more than one show a night it takes immense organization and to make sure you've got the manpower behind those shows and contingency as well you know it's a huge effort i put money in he had yokozuna over and he asked me to come and help him to run the shows so i was still working my full-time job at this time i took some annual leave the companies with were really good they gave me some unpaid leave and I went off to help them. The Yoko shows were good. We filled the halls. Yoko was a really, really strange guy to deal with. I mean, he was used to being kingpin, people running around for him, and he brought two guys over to help him. And they both worked on the shows as well. They both wrestled. But these guys carried his bag with them. They dressed them and looked after him he was quite immobile when he came across for Shaggy like he couldn't walk many places he didn't want to do the Yokozuna gimmick he wanted to come in wearing a t-shirt and stuff I mean he still looked like Yokozuna but it wasn't Yokozuna it wasn't the WWF and what people were expecting to see and the matches were pretty hard as well it would be Blondie and Skull with me in as like a mouthpiece type thing to get the people going because the people although he was a big name the people weren't really behind him that much so it was an effort to get the excitement generated and this was the crossover when it came away from being an adult orientated show to being a kids pantomime type show it wasn't as straightforward as you think that you just turn up and he generated like Mark Rocco he generated that excitement yeah. before he went in. It did take a bit of time and a bit of work to get him up there. And I don't know any of the Americans that have come across to the UK that have actually worked that well. You know, and, and I've worked with loads of them. I worked with Yoko. I worked with Tenta. I worked with the Bushwhackers, Genetti. I've worked with quite a few of them. And none of them, I thought, were really worth the money you know they were a splash on a poster but compared to what i'd seen before in my time like dave finley john quinn these type of people crusher mason working as mighty chang you know these people could wash these guys away and i don't know whether it's because they knew their name was carrying them i got on well enough with them and they ended up getting done by shaky for money and they went off home with the threat of sending over the Samoans to get shaky. I don't think that ever happened. I did work with him later on for Dixon. He came back over. Brian said to me, is there going to be any problems? And I said, why would there be a problem? You know, I, I never done anything to him. I worked my ass off to try and make him as good as he looked. Uh-huh. And I did the shows for Brian, doing exactly the same thing, working with him again. And uh, I mean, he was grateful. Don't get me wrong. He was grateful for what we did. And he just came and picked up his money, and it was that tour where he unfortunately passed away. That's right, yeah. I just wonder how many people sit with a conscience on that one, though. So the night before he passed away, we were down south 
Uh, we were down, I think it was Red Ruth, and we'd done the show, and they'd stayed in a little pub bed and breakfast when it was split. The team was split into two different accommodations, mm-hmm. and Brian had headed off in the morning because he had to go up to Gloucester, I think it was, to get stuff organised for the show. And I was driving Danny's car at that time, and I went to pick them up, and they were all pissed. And I said, come on, we're heading off. No, we're not. Started drinking again. And they drunk until about three o'clock in the afternoon. And they were steaming. Not just drunk, they were steaming. And Rod was drinking as well. And I don't think he was supposed to drink. And when he drinks, it's not like a pint. It's a bottle. Right. You know, it's like a litre bottle of Jack Daniels, I think it was, he was drinking. And he had a big steak and egg meal and all that. I mean, the pub was making a fortune from them. Uh-huh. But we get to the show and Dixon's shouting at me because he's thinking I should be able to control them. I can't control these guys. Yeah. You know? And that night on the show, Johnny South was pissed and he went in the ring, pissed and worked. Drew was pissed and went in and worked. Rod mm-hmm. was pissed and went in and worked. Skull was pissed and went in and worked. And, you know, I don't think it was the right thing to do. He went back home that night to Liverpool and uh, never woke up. From what I heard, he'd uh, fallen asleep on the edge of the bed, rolled backwards and drowned in his own lungs. I know Brian was a bit worried for a while after that. We did, not Southport, where did we do the next night? Stockport, I think it might have been. Uh-huh. And Brian didn't know whether to cancel the show or to keep going. And eventually he decided that he would let the Americans have the night off. So like Greg Valentine, Tiger Steel, people like that. He would let them have the night off to mm-hmm. console themselves. And we would run the show. Greg Valentine, what a waste of fucking space he was. <laughs> Honest to God, he was the laziest, absolute lump I've ever worked with in my life. I did Stoke on Trent with him and uh, get in the ring and he goes down onto one knee, and the whole match, I danced round about him while he was down on one knee. He never got up off that knee till it got to the finish, and he dropped the elbow. And I came out the ring, and Danny said to me, Danny Conzi said, you should have fucking twatted him. You know, instead of trying to make him look good and dance round about him, you should yeah. just have twatted him. I mean, he was just high in drugs all the time. Right. What a lazy, lazy guy he was. Not worth a penny. I don't really know his back career that uh-huh. much. He was never really the person that I would want to watch, you know, and he just was not worth a penny when he came over here. By all accounts, he did have a reasonable career in the States before that, but um, by that sort of time, he must have been cracking on considerably. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what he did most nights, was just go down on the one knee. <laughs> I put a video up on my YouTube channel with, I think it's him and Yoko against the Bushwhackers. And it's shite. It's absolute drivel. You know, and you think these guys filled 20,000-seater, 30,000-seater arenas. And you can see why the American job is so slow. Uh You know, and I know it's 21-foot rings and they've got a lot more space to fill and stuff like that. But if you watch the timing of their matches... It fades into comparison when you watch Johnny Saint. Rocco. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like watching Steve Gray and Clive Myers, it was like somebody had speeded up the video and they were playing in double speed. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. There was a guy, Brad Seeger, come across. He had uh-huh. done a tag team in America, come across for Scott Conway. He wanted to work and he would put effort into his match. And he was an okay lad. Bad Brad Elliott, Brad Seeger. He's dead now as well. He passed away last year, I think it was. I'm still in touch with his wife. His tag partner didn't like it over here when he came over from Scott. So Brad stayed and his partner went back home. Bill Perro was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can never remember the guy's name. Hollywood Blonde is what Brian advertised him as. And he put effort into his matches as well. When the Bushwhackers came across for Dixon, Brian said to me, I lived in Normanton, just outside uh, Wakefield. Mm-hmm. And I had a fairly big house there that I rented. It was there because of the tributes. And I'll go into that bit of the story later on. But it was empty. So there was only me and Michelle living there. So I had plenty of room. So Brian said to me, look, will you put them up? I said, yeah, of course I will. He said, put them up, bring them to the shows. Just you and the two of them come to the shows. I said, yeah, absolutely. So get to the show, pick them up, take them home. I give them their rooms. So the one of them's got an ensuite and one of them's got a standard room that he has to share the ensuite with the other one. They come to me a few days later and they say, look, no offence, we're 50 odd years of age, we want to walk around in our underpants, Michelle's here. And I said, no, that's fine. I said, she won't care. No, he said, we're going to get a bed and breakfast in Normanton and we're going to move there. So I said, well, that's fine. So they spoke to Brian and Brian said, okay. So we got them sorted out with a bed and breakfast. But then Brian started putting more and more people in the car. So instead of just being the two of them in my car, and I had a fairly big car that time. I can't remember what it was. It was quite roomy. But he would start putting another person in, and then he would put five. (laughs) And the little one got the needle. So I went to pick them up, and we were going to Croydon, and uh, was it Butch that stayed? He said, uh, Luke's gone. I said, where's he gone? He said, uh, he's gone to Heathrow. I said, what's he gone to Heathrow for? We're going down that way anyway. He said, uh, he's flying home. I said, oh, right, okay. <laughs> Has anybody told Brian? Uh, no. <laughs> I said, uh, right, okay. You might want to phone Brian and let him know that his two stars for the show aren't actually going to be there. It's only going to be you. So I said, you know, if you want to phone him, instead of him paying for a taxi to drive all the way down to Heathrow, I'll drive him down. We'll take him down and drop him off. We just won't tell Brian that's what we're doing. He said, no, he's gone. And I think the two of them fell out for quite a bit of time over this because they were the pair. They worked as the pair all the time. Yeah. And it meant that Butch had to stay here and work by himself as a solo bushwhacker, which it sort of worked, but not the same. Yeah. So me and Butch drove around for a while and then he went off on his merry back to the States. I think Big Darren keeps in touch with them. I think the two of them have made up now. But see, I think there was quite a ripple between them for a good few years because Luke thought that Butch should leave with him. He said that Brian was taking the piss out of them, that it wasn't what they agreed to, that they agreed to be getting chauffeured around, just the two of them. They expected it to be in a van, not a car, because Luke had broken both ankles when he played rugby or something, and he walked his feet at a funny angle. I don't know if you ever spot that on any of the videos. He sort of waddles because his ankles were broken. 
So he was in quite a bit of pain most of the time as well. The funniest thing, they phoned me up and I'd just had my dinner with Michelle and I was getting myself ready to go and pick up. They said, your dinner's here. I said, oh, I've just had it. They said, no, no, we've ordered your dinner for you. I said, okay. So I said to Michelle, I'll see you tonight. I'm off with these. Went down to the pub bed and breakfast they're in and they're sat at the table and they've got me a steak dinner. I'm thinking, I've just had my fucking dinner. I don't want this. <laughs> and they've sat there and they've got all their tablets out in front in a row. And they take a mouthful and they pick a tablet up, take another mouthful, take another tablet. And it was all these vitamins and oils and God knows what that they took to try and make their joints move. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sat there trying to shove this steak down, me, which I didn't want. You know, I'm not a big eater and I didn't want to offend them. And I had to say to them, look, guys, I said, thanks very much, but you do not need to order me dinner every time we're travelling. I'm quite happy to just come and pick these up. We'll go on the trip together. But uh, they were funny. They had their own routine, uh-huh. and you couldn't vary from their routine. Right. You had to follow it step by step, their own match. And I guess this was because they were protecting their gimmick, and because they travelled the world doing shows with little promoters like Brian, they had to protect what they were doing, so everything was a stage for them. Everything was in the same order. And it was difficult at times because if the people weren't with you and you were still doing the same moves, you know yourself, the move doesn't create the reaction. Uh-huh. And you're thinking, I shouldn't be going on to this next step. We should be changing it to this. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, just keep plowing on. Keep plowing on. <laughs> so back to Shaky. Yeah. I just want to ask you quickly, on those Yoko shows especially, you... You had one hell of a crew. It was basically a who's who of British wrestling at that time. Who actually put the crew together? Was it both of you or? Uh, no, Shaky. I wasn't involved in the promoting at that time. He right. had just asked me because there was a lot of money for those shows, a lot of money invested, a lot of money coming in in merchandise as well. He needed to be concentrating on that and he didn't want to be concentrating on running the shows. Right. So he asked me to help run the show. And you know, I'm like, I have a mouth on me. So whatever he wanted for the show, I would get that over to the guys. Doesn't matter what you want to do, this is what he wants you to do. Right. And we'd run the show that way. Marty fell out with me once because I wanted him and Scout to work. And I get. I 100% get why Marty didn't want to work with Skull. He wanted to work with a younger lad, and it would have been a 100% better match. But it was at Chelmsford, and Shaky wanted Marty and Skull to work. So that's what happened. It would have been better if Marty gone on with somebody else younger, and he'd have done his magic with them and made them look absolutely brilliant. But instead of that, I think Shaky wanted to relive the days of Marty and Skull being the top of the bill and and bringing the house down. And they still had a great match, but it would have been better swapped around. But you know what it's like? If you're the promoter, you're paying the money. Yeah. So you want what you want. Yeah. Yoko fell out with me because we were at one show and Yoko used to sit in the ring at the interval and take the Polaroid pictures. I think Uh they were £10 a Polaroid picture. So the guy came to me at the end of the show and he said, look, my lad went in the ring and he had the picture taken with Yoko. He said, and this way it's turned out. And they'd asked to get another one taken. It was terrible. 
it's all out of focus, bloody. And uh, they'd said no. And I said, is that right? Is that what they said? So I went in to dress and I said to Rod, look, Rod, see all those pictures you're taking? I said, you can throw that in the fucking bin. I said, that lad's out there paid 10 quid for a photo that's shit. I said, you either take another picture with him now or you won't take another picture on any of the shows we're doing. He took a picture with him. <laughs> and I know people say that he's Simone and, you know, these guys are headstrong and stuff, but he's a businessman. Uh-huh. And when you speak to him in terms that he understands as a business, he knew what I was saying. I wasn't saying it to be aggressive or big-headed. He could have flattened me. But that kid had paid 10 quid for a picture. Yeah. He deserved a picture. Yeah, absolutely. And just because he thought, I don't want to, I'm moving on to the next show, that doesn't work for me. You know, it's pride in the show for me. Were there a lot of conflicts working with that crew? Uh, yes. Yes. So Drew fell out was, this was on the earthquake shows, I think it was. We'd gone up to Stornoway and Drew and a guy called Mankind, or Uh the Viking, Mark Atkins, they had gone to the pub and got themselves pissed. So I said to Mark, you're not working on the show, you're too drunk, can't do it. And he sat in the dressing room and Drew, I said, you can't work, Drew. And he said, I'm fucking working. And you couldn't change it. So he was on with Johnny South. And Johnny South tried to get him through the match. Drew got on the microphone, pissed as a fart, and started shouting and bawling the microphone to the point where we actually had to turn the microphone off. So I said to Mark, you know, that's the end of it. And Drew went off to work for Oreg and caused a whole lot of problems with Oreg for us. Started spreading stories around that, you know, shouldn't have maybe been said. Because right. Oric was a bit of a hothead as well. He caused a lot of problems for people. Uh, he threatened to get me shot. Yeah, I remember <laughs> you telling me that. I mean, I worked for him after that, and I got on yeah. okay with him. But yeah, he had the connections to get me shot. It's not yeah. like it's an idle threat. He had his connections in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. That could well have come and done it. And Danny Collins told me that two guys actually turned up to do it, and it was just that we were away that saved me, or else I would have been getting kneecapped or something. But, yeah, uh, I remember you telling me that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much truth is in that from Danny. I can't imagine that it would be far away from the truth, no Norig. But <laughs> yeah, it's wrestling. You never know. Yeah. You never know. So after the Yoko tour, the next one, obviously, was Earthquake, John Tenter. What was he like to work with compared to Yoko, and how were those shows different if they were? So Tenter wanted to try and work, but he didn't have MD big enough to work with. Right. So we had to build a match round about him. Yeah. Which was basically the big daddy tag. Yeah, the daddy tag. Him and Andy Flyer, me and Jace the Ace. The problem with Tenter was he didn't understand that me and Jace were going out our way to work for him mm-hmm. because we get nothing out of that match. It was a daddy road show. It was all about building up for him. And that caused a lot of problems 
Jace fell out with it over it. And I don't blame Jace for falling out over it. You know, it's demoralising every night to go in and do a bump match for somebody who doesn't even come to you at the end and say thanks. And it got to one show where Tenta had been whispering in people's ears about how shit I was at running the shows and that he would be better doing it. And we got to breakfast in the bed and breakfast. And I said to him, you can run the show tonight. And he ran the show that night. And the top of the bill match was him and Skull. And they were going into the ring, still not knowing what they were going to be doing. The whole show stunk that badly. Next morning at breakfast, I said to them, that worked, didn't it? (laughs) And that was it. That was it. Never said another word. Just let me run the shows in. Uh-huh. What works in America doesn't work over here. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Have you been to the WWE shows? Yeah, I did go to them. I went to one and it was the most disappointing thing that I'd ever been to because when they come onto the ramp, there's a pop. When they get into the ring, there's nothing. And it's silence until they do one of their recognised moves. Uh-huh. And then everybody claps, and then it's silent again. And it's just not a show to me. Yeah. I spoke about this in the last episode. It was um, comparing that to being at a British show where you're right up close to everything that's going on. Watching that kind of thing was actually more like kind of watching a show, watching a play, watching a pantomime, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas I fell in love with the real up close and personal sense that you got at um, a British show? Yeah, absolutely. I watched Shawn Michaels and Gennetti in a tag match, which should have been amazing to watch mm-hmm. because the gear that they were doing, and it was flat as a pancake. Yeah. I think it was Hogan and Macho Man that were top of the bill. Right. And again, Hogan got a massive reaction when he first came out, but it was dead for the majority of the match. Uh-huh. And I couldn't see what these people found so interesting and to sit in that arena for just to cheer. I mean, it was like a talent parade. If you just kept them walking up and down the ring and playing their music and the pyros and everything, then yeah. But actually, what quality? They were throwing punches. You know, the punch that they threw was in London and it wouldn't even connected if it was in Glasgow. <laughs> there was so much room between their work. It was so yeah. sloppy and... Maybe that's because they were all full of drugs and everything when you read the stories about what they were like back then. you know. It's... It will be, you know. Mm-hmm. Last year, I went to a show to catch up with Drew. And watching that show, it was exactly what you were saying. You could have put a bus through some of the stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I get that's because they're on that schedule. Mm-hmm. Seven days a week, 30 days a month. You need to perform every single day. Why would you be wanting to hurt yourself? The money they're on, you know, I mean, it's a huge difference to what we're on. If your boss accepts that standard of match, uh-huh. why would you push any further? Yeah. Because you know yourself, if that had been on your show or one of the shows I was running, I wouldn't have stood for that. No. You know, these people paid to come and see a match. Give them a match. Mm-hmm. Don't just give them an entrance and an exit. Yeah, Absolutely. We mentioned there a little bit about Orig and a load of trouble being caused. When you were running the BWF, did you have any relationships 
either good or bad with other promoters? No. When I came in to do it with Shaky, I came in as a business person rather than a wrestling promoter. Right. I mean, Michelle will tell you, I had an office where Shaky used to run it from a briefcase. And on the office wall was every single show we were doing with tick lists to make sure that everything was done. Michelle would make up the wage packets for everybody. And the guys will all tell you, on the shows that I ran, every single person got paid that night. Nobody had to wait for their money. We got the merchandising in. I got in touch with a good company in Glasgow that got good quality, actual WWE merchandise that we were selling instead of the plastic crap you know, uh-huh. that other people were selling. And we worked the shows professionally. We went back to being like Dale Martin type thing where it was a business to run. Nobody was running in Cardiff and we checked who was running where. So we weren't stepping in MD's toes. We had quite good halls to run as well. And there was a lot of money you had to pay up front. Some of these halls you were paying £5,000 deposit months before the show, like St David's Hall in Cardiff, where we sold that out. We sold it out months before the actual show, but they hold the money. Yeah. You don't get the money, and I think people no. don't understand that. You know, you don't get the money to probably, what, three weeks after? Yeah. You know, and that's if you're lucky. It's three weeks after. Yeah. But that night, the show that caused the trouble was the St. David's Hall in Cardiff. Oric felt that because he runs Wales, that we shouldn't have run a show in Wales. Right. And because we sold it out, he expected us to give every single penny of profit to him. Not just a cut. He expected every single penny of profit to be given to him. And I said, absolutely not. Shaky's panicking. He's thinking, geez, oh, you know, what are we doing? And I said, no. And I can't remember who it was he sent to the show. But he sent somebody to the show. And I think they were expecting to pick up money. And they didn't get a penny. Yeah. And we cleared up. We done, I think it was 14,000 we did in merchandise profit. Not taking profit, 14,000 in merchandise from that show. And we made a lot of money from the ticket sales as well. But that got ploughed in. It wasn't money to get put into the bank. It got ploughed in to doing yeah. the next month's shows. You know, putting out the upfront rental for the halls, paying yeah. for newspaper adverts. It all got ploughed back in. So as much as I made a lot of money from the tributes, I didn't make a penny. I actually yep. ended up losing £10,000 when Shaky and I split. I was left with just over £10,000 worth of debt from them, which caused a whole lot of trouble between me and the guys because they couldn't understand. Shaky wanted to keep going. We got to a point where we were doing these shows and there was 10 people in. Wow. You know, and we're paying a £1,000 to book the hall. Yeah. And I'm saying to him, just cancel it. Cancel the show. He's saying, well, the guys will want the money. We've cancelled the show. Why would you pay them their money? You know yourself, if you don't pay guys because you've cancelled the show, that's the risk that you run in this job. You know, if you're cancelling it like two or three weeks in advance, you wouldn't expect to pay somebody their wages. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, like, we need to stop doing this. The bubbles burst on it. And he just wanted to keep going and going and going. And I said, no, that's me. I'm done. So we split ways and he left me with a lot of money in debt. And I found, 
I found a lot of stuff when he left. So he would used to say, I'm working in the office tonight. You take the show, run the show. And I would go off and he would actually fly up rent boys from London. And there would be airplane tickets and stuff in his bedroom. And that's what I found when he left. He was paying like 500 quid to fly this guy up to sit and have sex with him for three or four hours and then flying back home that night as well. So we never knew what was actually happening. Wow. What can you do? You know, I mean, I thought he was a friend. Yeah. And that was the mistake that I made in this job. I thought he's got a really bad past. He's done people no end of times. He'll not do me. I had control of all the money until I gave him a card. He asked for a card for the bank. And when I gave him the card for the bank, that's when it went tits up because he just emptied the bank. Right. You know, he'd pay for airplane tickets on it and stuff like that. And I wouldn't see the bank statements because he was managing everything and I was running the shows and I was too busy. And I took my eye off the ball, you know, and that was the problem. I have sleepless nights still thinking how much money he actually owes people. Mm -hmm. You know, and I couldn't understand when I finished and I said to the guys, I'm really sorry, I'm finished, I can't do any more of this, I'm losing money, I'm actually paying out my own pocket for your wages, why they went with him, knowing that he had no money, and they ended up, they paid for the shows themselves, and they lost money as well, they invested in the shows and ended up screwing themselves. He got back into wrestling at least a couple of times after that, when people still went back to work for him, I mean, what were your thoughts on that? Stupid. Uh Absolutely stupid, you know. When you know what he's done, and when you know what he's done to me, because they all knew, they all knew exactly what he'd done to me. I mean, he came up and he gave me a check, because I kept the wrestling ring, and he gave me a check for the ring, and took the ring away and it bounced. And they all knew. They knew what was happening. They knew that he was shafting me, but they still went with him. And that caused a lot of issues for me you know I fell out with a lot of people over it it tainted my view and a lot of people as well and you know there was a picture put up on Facebook at one point with them all going to a show and I said there might only be 10 lads there I said but there's 20 fucking faces mm-hmm. you know because each one of them had a two face I get they all want to work they all think that they want to get the money but when they know that they're having to pay their own show Uh Do they really want to work? Yeah. It's one of them things in wrestling, isn't it? You know, you you find very little true loyalty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, later on, the big expose comes out with him being done for being a child molester. Yeah. And you think that would be the end of it. Nobody would want to go anywhere near him. But they still wanted to go and do the shows for him. Yeah. Money talks, unfortunately. But that's the thing, there's no money. Uh-huh. You asked John Short what the difference was like when Shaky ran the shows compared to when I ran them and then when Shaky started doing them again. You know, Ask him about the time that he spent overnight in Berwick in the car park because he didn't have enough petrol to drive back home and Shaky left them there. You know, I think he had to sell stuff from the car to get petrol to drive back home. What type of person does that? You know, I mean, he used to say to me, uh, I've sent your cheque recorded delivery. This is when he was paying back the £10,000. And 
give me a recorded delivery number and I would try and find this. Nothing would turn up. And you would wait for weeks. And the stupid thing was I knew it would never turn up, but I get bought into that stupidity and I think, oh yeah, he sent it this time. And Michelle used to say to me, you're being a fool. The guy is a con man. He's conned you. You know, I'm still in touch with his family. They have nothing to do with him either. After I left Liverpool, I moved to Peterborough and they looked after me in Peterborough. His gran looked at me in my eight stone and she fed me up. You know, uh-huh. I mean, she made sure that I was going to put on weight and bulk, you know, and she was an absolutely lovely woman. But she believed so much in him that he took advantage of, which was so unfair. Right. You know, uh, but I still in touch with his brother and his brother's family, and they're all lovely, sort of type people. They have no agenda, unlike him. They were taken in by him as much as MDLs. They didn't know what was happening. They get fed full of false promises. Michelle and I are together, you know, just after the camp's finished, and he says to us, I've got some shows in Abu Dhabi. I'm thinking, Abu Dhabi? Who <laughs> the fucking hell wants to go to Abu Dhabi? So he said, you'll need to get your passport. So I've got my passport, I'm fine. Michelle, have you got a passport? No, I've not got a passport. Right, you'll need to go to the passport. 70 quid to get a passport. Knowing these shows aren't even going to take place. He made that girl go and spend 70 quid. You know, he could have stepped in at any time and said, I'm sorry, I was lying. I was just making up this thing to make myself look good. But no, yeah. he, he didn't. He just let her go and get it, took photocopies of it, put it in his briefcase. And two months later, we're thinking, like, what's happening? Well, yeah. there's no show. I was reading an old newspaper article recently that talks about an incident with a hotel owner from Rothsey um, <laughs> getting in the ring with a police escort to demand payment. What's the story there? So... He would always use good quality hotels. Uh-huh. Probably Best Western. He had a Best Western directory in his briefcase. And he would book them under the company name. The lads would all fill in their details and stuff. And he would get up in the morning and he would walk down to reception. And he would say, just fax the invoice to the office. And they would say, well, we need cash. And say, no, 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 no. Just fax it to the office. And he was such a plausible... You know, I mean, he's a con uh-huh. man. He looks the part. He's got his briefcase. He's well-dressed, so well-spoken. And they would believe it. So they would send the fax with the invoice and never get paid. And they would chase him for the money and nothing would ever happen. Normally, people would just give up in the end. When we were doing the tributes, we ran a show at Irvine and sold it out. Sold out the Magnum Centre at Irvine. And I went up to the management office to get the check from them for the takings. And the guy said to me, uh, sorry, this guy's here from the debt collection agency. They've uh, been to the court and they've taken the takings. And I said, but it's not Shakey's show. And he said, Shane booked the show. It's his takings. And they took, I think it was like four or five thousand pounds for a hotel that he'd shafted in Irvine. And that was my money, you know, it, yeah. it wasn't his. And I made the mistake then of letting him book the show and that never, ever happened again. It always went down in my name as well so that they couldn't take his stuff. He had a Jag that he bought and the debt collector phoned up 
and he said to the debt collector that he'd need to speak to me because he'd sold the Jag to me. And the debt collector saying, you realise you've broken the law that he's not allowed to sell the car to you? And I'm like, I don't want to get involved in this type of stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I might be a little bit shady at times, but, you know, this is proper crime. Yeah. And I don't want to be involved in it. When I took over the shows, everything got paid. Every hall, every bed and breakfast. I actually changed the way we worked. So instead of stopping in a bed and breakfast, I took Maxi's type of mould. I actually rented a house. And this goes back to the story of telling about the bushwhackers. I rented a house, a big like six, seven bedroom house. First one up in just outside Helensborough, Fairy Lodge, we called it. And it was an old rundown farmhouse that we rented. And I paid the guy six months rental in advance so that I didn't even have to think about it. And he said to me, he said, what are you doing? Because he thought, who the hell pays six months in advance? And I said, look, this is what I'm doing. I'm running shows. I only need this as a temporary base where we're on the shows and we'll be coming back and forth. And he said, that's absolutely fine. It's in the middle of nowhere, so you're not going to be disturbing people coming back in at three and four in the morning. Don't worry about it. So that was great. We ran the shows up here and everybody had to stay in this farmhouse. I bought four sets of bunk beds and put them in the bedrooms. I mean, John Short will tell you about this. He lived this with us as well. And there'd be like three sets of bunk beds in one bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) And all these big hairy wrestlers would all have to sleep on top of each other. And it's fucking hilarious. And they stood for it. They just took it. I mean, a couple of them... John Riley said to me, I can't take it. I'm going back home. And James Mason as well couldn't take it, so he didn't stay on the shows. But most people live with it. And we kept that model. And it worked because the guys could make their food in the house as well. So they weren't having to pay takeaways. We left at sensible times. There was a queue for the showers. That was the only thing. And I'll tell you a story about John Short and the showers. But it worked. And then when we cleaned out all over Scotland and we started to move back down into England, I rented the house in Wakefield and I did exactly the same thing there. I went to the guy, a big house, nice estate in Wakefield, and uh, paid him six months in advance. So I didn't have to think about rent and stuff like that. I told him exactly what we were doing because what I didn't want to happen was somebody phoned him and said, do you know there's like 20 guys living in this house? Is he renting that out as a house of multi-occupancy? So I was straight up with the guy. I said, look, this is what's going to happen. We'll have the ring van there. We'll have the car there. There'll be guys coming in and out, but they're working. They're all contract workers. They're working for us. And he said, no, that's absolutely fine. Try to keep the noise down as much as you can to not disturb the neighbours. And we did. You know, we were good as gold. I don't know what they maybe thought about Shaky flying in the prostitutes right enough, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> But that was the model that I used. It saved a fortune on paying for accommodation and everybody stayed in the same house. And it worked. It worked for the what eight months that we did it. But the shows started dwindling. It wasn't because of the accommodation. The shows went, you know yourself, the wrestling job has cycles. Yeah. And it was just coming to the end of that cycle and we couldn't get out because we'd invested so much in advance for the halls that we thought that we should keep running them. And as much as I was saying to Shaky, don't, we'll need to stop them. He kept saying, oh no, it'll get better, it'll get better. You're phoning up for the advance and it's like two. 
thinking, how can it get any better? Yeah. And you know yourself, it's embarrassing when you go to a hall with a group of lads and you know that there's only going to be 10 people in that hall. Yep. And how do you get the best out of them? Yeah. I have been in that position on more than one occasion. How did it go, you know, so drastically from, I mean, I know, as you said, there was a drop off in wrestling generally, but to go from what you were doing down to those incredible low numbers, that can't have happened overnight. It did. Yeah, it did. The bubble just burst. So I think what happened was we'd flooded the market with tributes. Right. So I think uh, Oreg was running his tributes. Ian McGregor was running his tributes. That's right. I was doing my own tributes. I think Brian had started to get back into the tribute market as well. And I think it just flooded the market. I think at the same time, the WWE were coming across more often as well. Right. And people were holding their money to go and see the WWE rather than coming to see the tribute. And as much as people slag the tributes to death, they put a lot of money in people's pockets. They kept a lot of people employed. And the tributes weren't the show. When you actually came to the show, the show had a lot more to it than just that 15, 20 minutes. So on my tributes, it was Mankind and Kane. Mm-hmm. And we did a little routine with me and Mankind, Kane coming to save Mankind, and then Kane going over on me. So none of the other guys had to lose face uh-huh. doing that tribute match. you know. And Justin was Kane. He used to get to work on his own as himself as well. So yeah. he wasn't just stuck in that routine of just doing Kane. And I paid them well. <laughs> I'll give you an example. When Mankind was doing the sock gimmick, uh-huh. I went to the cash and carry in Manchester and I bought two big boxes of white socks. And I gave the lads the socks. And I said to them when we were at the house back at Fairy Lodge, gave them some marker pens and some beer. And I said to them, draw the faces on them for us. Whatever you do, don't make them fucking different. Just make them the same faces. So they're getting pissed through the night, drawing all these different faces on. I think, for fuck's sake. So we get to the next hall, and I said to Michelle, I said, put these up, £2 a sock. She said, £2 a sock? I said, £2 a sock. So she puts up the socks. They went flying off the counter. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get them quick enough. And then people were coming back saying, can I get the one with the smiley face and the crown? And I'm like, no, they're all the same. And Michelle said, no, they're not. So they're all different designs. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. And that's what was happening. So you had a queue. Instead of just going £2, £2, £2, £2, you had people rooting through a box for one that had a smiley face and a crown. You bastard. You bastard. <laughs> but that's the thing. So, I mean, people that work with Michelle just now, they came to some of our shows. And one of the people said, I will always remember that I gave my kid £2 to buy one sock. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the big A3 posters, the laminated WWE yeah. posters that they yeah. used to get. So we used to buy them at the Cash and Carry in Manchester for 49 pence, including VAT. And we'd sell them on the shows for five quid. Wow. And they flew. They absolutely flew. So we're at one show and a guy came up to me and his son is whinging at him. He wants one of the rock or something like that. And the guy's saying to his kid, I can buy it at the market for a pound. And he looked at me. I said, you're not at the market. 
<laughs> and that was it. He had to put his hand in his pocket and pay five quid for that fucking poster. But again, people think that money's in my bank. That money's not in my bank. That yeah. money went to pay for the yep. wages. That went to pay for the next booking of the hall, for printing off tickets, for printing off posters. I keep saying it, I lost just over £10,000 on it. And I'd love to say I made an absolute fortune out doing the tributes. But like anything I've done in wrestling, I've ended up losing money out of it. Yeah, you're always kind of robbing from Peter to pay Paul, aren't you? You know, yep. it's, um, yeah, no, that was, yeah, that was, that, that was my experience as well. Trying to find money to cover that bill, trying to find money to cover this bill. And then you've got some guy that you know is going to be absolute crap when he comes on the night, phone you up and saying, well, I want more money. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, no. But you talking about selling stuff there sort of reminds me of the one time at Sterling. I'd been out shopping like the previous day and I'd gone into like a, a pound type shop for something. And um, they had these little figurines. Like, I, I think they were like an ashtray or something. Um, and they had these uh, little raster men on them, you know, with a big spliff and the ganja leaves and all of this. And I was looking at this thing and I thought, hmm. So I, I grabbed one. It was a quid or whatever it was. And took it to the show and put it on the table. I said to Tracy, who was doing the table at the time, I said, right, mark these up as Justin Richards action figures. And whatever we charged from like fiver or whatever it was you know and um you know we just play a bit of a rib on justin the rib was on me because we had people asking for more of them you know we could we could have sold a hundred that night yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's very strange what people will buy when they're out at a show i'm, yeah. I'm the same so i go to the theater a lot and the first thing i look for when i go in do they sell any mugs uh-huh. and i'm paying 10 quid for a mug with the show's logo on it I've got 60 of them in my house. <laughs> That's 600 quid <laughs> in mugs. You know, and Michelle keeps saying to me, we've got no room for them. Don't buy any more. And I'm scared to miss out. Can't I not have this one? Yeah. We're going to this show. I need to get it. And it's just strange when people go to a show. Like, I mean, who goes to the cinema and spends six quid in a bucket of popcorn mm. and accepts that as just the norm? Yeah. You know, we all know we're going to be shafted, but we still go and do it. The John Short story. So John, as you know, is bedraggled. Although he's the front of the show, uh-huh. he is not the front of show. Smooth, sophisticated personality. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, we need to do something. We need to make this guy look more corporate, more the front of the show. So I said to him, John, how about we dye your hair? And you know, I don't know about that. I said, no, no, we'll dye it. Just get rid of the grey. We'll get it looking more natural. Maybe get your hair cut as well. Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So we get him to Fairy Lodge and we get some jet black hair dye. And we get it on. And I said to the lads, I said, as soon as I put this on, start queuing up for the shower. So there's only one shower. <laughs> so Shaky's making dinner. So there's no sink. So I've got the dye on him. Two hours later, he's still sitting with his hair dye on. Eventually we get him in the shower, get it washed off. He looks like Elvis Presley. So it's shiny, shiny, shiny black hair, 
but the dye has dyed all round his forehead, round his ears. <laughs> it full works. So, I mean, it took a bit of scrubbing to get that off as well. But, yeah, it looked excellent. But the lads played along great with that rib as well. I mean, John will tell you. He'll, he'll tell you. He knows it. The other one we did with him as well was Shake had got a people carrier to take people on the show so that uh, we didn't have to pay for every their own car. Uh-huh. So we got John in the people carrier instead of him taking his car. And uh, I put some self-tanning lotion into a little spray bottle. And every time he went to sleep, I would spray some of this self-tanning just on one side of his face. <laughs> Leave it for 20 minutes. He would drop off again. I'd give him another spray. By the time we got to the show, he was like, you know those people that work half and half? Half man, half woman? Uh-huh. That's his way his face looked. It's like <laughs> half a black man, half a white man. It was hilarious. So, of course, he had to dye the other half to match until it all faded off. But, yeah, I sprayed and sprayed and sprayed them. Oh, fantastic. The wind-ups and stuff like that were part of the living closely together again as well. There were yeah. never anything that was malicious. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just as a bit of relief, a bit yeah. of fun to break the monotony. No, you need that, definitely. Mm-hmm. It can get very tedious. Yeah, absolutely. When I first started, I only had one pair of shoes and uh, this pair of wrestling boots that I was paying up. And we were driving, Frank Cullen was driving, and the guys took my shoes off. So we stopped for something, and Frank said, them fucking shoes are stinking, and put them on the windscreen wipers. So we go off driving my shoes on the windscreen wipers. Starts to rain, and he forgets they're on the windscreen and goes to use the windscreen wipers. My two shoes go flying. That's me. I've got nothing to walk around in. I ended up had to spend the whole week walking around in my wrestling boots till I could afford to buy another pair of shoes. But it was just a bit of fun that went wrong. I mean, Frank probably doesn't even remember the story, but yeah, that's, uh, things like that stick in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so they used to do all sorts of stuff like you weren't allowed to sleep when you were in Dixon's car. Mm-hmm. That was a big no-no no sleeping so if you fell asleep they would light a little bit of paper just under your nose or set fire to your moustache if you had a moustache and you would wake up with the smell of the smoke going up your nose and you'd start whacking yourself in the face you know there'd be all sorts of things like that they would draw stuff on your face it was a big no-no to go to sleep Uh in this car it's the last thing you wanted to do was go to sleep so with that in mind did you ever come across people who were really malicious and, you know, were out to really do somebody in? Yeah. A lad called Steve Prince, Pringle. He was from Plymouth originally, I think. Moved up to Stoke-on-Trent, I think. Yeah, he lived in Stoke, didn't he? Yeah, complete wanker. Absolute tosser. So he thought that it was funny to take... I had a sandwich... And he thought it was funny to take it and fill it full of tobacco ash and watch me eat it. You know, and knowing that I didn't have any money to buy another sandwich and not offer to buy me a sandwich afterwards, he didn't know the art of a wind-up. Right. You know, and he was really never in the job, to be honest. I know he thinks he is, but, I mean, if you watch what Finlay did to him on the TV, that tells you what the guys actually thought of him. He was just an arrogant arsehole. Mm-hmm. 
I never got on with them. I didn't like them. I had to work with them on the parks. And when I worked with them, I never learned a thing from them. Not one thing. He was Dixon's cheap man to go to. There's always assholes everywhere you go in life. He probably thinks I'm an asshole too. I know for a fact that there's a lot of people think I'm an asshole, and that's fair enough. I don't mind that. So after the BWF had finished, or after you had finished with BWF, you went back to work for All-Star again. Not just in the ring, but also in that backstage capacity again. I helped with Brian. Brian's one of these people that you think you're doing stuff for him, but he's actually doing it. Frank Cullen ran shows for him as well mm-hmm. for a time, and I bet Brian was still running the shows. He needed help sometimes, but he still wanted to do his own thing. When you went back there, how were you received by people? I mean, you just basically spent the previous few years having been their main competition. Did you ever have any problems with anybody? No. Because it's a self-employed job. Yeah. I wasn't stepping on MD's toes when I ran shows. I didn't do like other promoters did. I didn't run a show in direct competition to MD. Uh-huh. You know, I didn't take money out of MD's pocket. I did my own thing. And Brian did his own thing. So no, nobody came to me and said, you're an absolute prick for running those tribute shows. Mm-hmm. Because every single night that I ran those tribute shows, there was 10 guys getting a wage. Uh-huh. You know, and that's what this job was about, was getting money in people's pockets. So, no, no, never came at me. And to be fair, it was just around the same time that the Stoke lads came along for Dixon. So there wasn't really many people on the show that would have come up to me and said anything to me about it. Right. None of Shakey's reputation ended up on you when you, no, when you went because, back there. Because everybody knew I paid. Right. Every single person knew that I paid. And the thing for me was not about, you know, I'll pay you tomorrow. The money was there. Pay them. Don't think about, I could use this money to buy that. If they've done the job for you, give them the money. You yeah. know, because I don't know what that person needs the money for. So I wasn't going to say, no, I'll pay you at the end of the week or anything like that. No, because Brian used to pay on the parks. When you done the holiday camps, you get paid at the end of the week. Right. You didn't get paid nightly. But no, I paid the guys when they'd done the work for me. Justin and Mark, when they'd done the photographs, the Polaroids, they get a percentage of the Polaroids as well. Mm-hmm. So it was in their interest to get as many Polaroids getting done as possible. We used to spend 35, 40 minutes doing the Polaroids. They were making that much money from it. And I would occasionally, when we finished the show, we'd made a lot of money. We would go to an Indian restaurant and... I would pay for everybody to have the meal in the Indian restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, we did that a couple of times. And that was just as a thank you to the guys for sticking in and doing such hard work. Because nobody came on those tribute shows for me and just coasted. Uh-huh. Everybody put in 100% effort to making that whole show work, which was great. We've got one of the Tenta shows. I put one of them up on YouTube, some of the stuff on there. And you can see how hard... Jason and I worked to try and get that guy over. The hall's empty. You know, what does that say? These weren't my shows. These were shaky shows. But we posted everywhere for this. So his name wasn't worth a dime. We went up to Stornoway and we drove up to Ullapool and the ferry goes out like nine o'clock in the morning. 
the captain comes on and says, I'm really sorry, the weather's quite bad. We're going to hold going. So, right, okay, it's a lovely day here. I'm thinking, why is it not okay? And uh, we keep waiting and waiting and waiting. So eventually we get to five o'clock at night and we're at the point where we're thinking, do we cancel the show and just go home or do we keep going? So we thought, these people don't get a lot of entertainment, so we'll just keep going. So the captain comes on and says, the weather's breaking, we're going to make a go for it. So off we go. And as we go through the bay, all the pool, it's lovely. Get outside the bay, it's like a force nine gale. This <laughs> thing is going up and down and up and down. They came and they shut the curtains so that nobody could see out. Mm-hmm. They put sick bags out everywhere and they ran out of sick bags. There was puke everywhere. It stunk. Danny Collins and I are stood on the deck inside and every time the ship dropped, it was like a skateboarding thing. You would just hang in midair and then come <laughs> down. It was hilarious. Michelle phoned her mum and said goodbye to her mum. She believed that we were going to die. It was that bad. And Tenta was green. He was absolutely green. He didn't like it at all. So we get to the show and the people are waiting. I think it was about eight o'clock at night and we got a message to them that we're coming. So they helped us get the ring in and everything, get it all built up. We've done the show for them. There's no hotel afterwards. We just wait on the ferry going straight back. So the ferry starts to load about three o'clock in the morning. So we're all in the ring van. Tenta doesn't want to come in the ring van. So where is he? He stood in the phone box in the pissing, howling rain, phoning his wife, moaning <laughs> about the conditions. <laughs> While everybody else is in the ring van with beers, having a great time. There's some funny things, you know. It was scary. The same night, there was a ferry had gone down further around the coast. It had sunk in the same storm. So I had actually asked the guy why we hadn't turned back. And he said that the captain can't turn the ship. If we turn it side on, it'll capsize us. Mm-hmm. So we just have to keep going through it. Wow. They're quite used to that up there. That's quite a normal journey for them. Uh-huh. So I'll give you another John Short story as well. So we'd done the tribute shows in St. Neots and had all the A3 posters out on the table selling them. John's at the ring announcing all the stuff. Some little scrot of a kid has lifted up the ring skirt and seen that the posters are under the ring, the supplier mm-hmm. posters. So the word's gone round. So all these kids start going down under the ring, start stealing the posters. John Short stood watching them. So I come into the hall and I can see this happening. And I'm shouting to John, can you not see them fucking stealing the posters? So he's looking around going, oh, oh, I've never seen him, I've never seen him. So I got on the microphone and I said, <laughs> I said, I can't fucking believe it. You parents are sitting there watching your kid stealing my stuff. Unless you bring back every single fucking poster, I'm ending the show and we're leaving. <laughs> John Short's looking at me going, you can't say that. <laughs> I was raging. I mean, you know yourself. I mean, it's 45 pence, it's nothing. But it's the value that I was going to be losing. Yeah. There's like 500 quid had gone out through the door and he's mm-hmm. just stood watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I got most of the posters back. We never went back to St. Neats after that. I don't think uh, the home were quite happy with my tone on the microphone. Mm, I was working as a villain that night, so it didn't matter to me. <laughs> anyway. 
as a promoter, you know, if people start stealing blatantly from you, why yeah. would you not say something to them? Oh, yeah. I think there was one guy phoned the police and he wasn't happy because I'd called his child a criminal. So the police turned up and I went into the room with them and I said to the policeman, can you ask the kid, did he go under the ring and take a poster? Yes, I did. Did you pay for that poster? No, you didn't. Were you supposed to pay for it? Yes, I was. You're a fucking thief then, aren't you? And his dad just looked and went, well, not much I can say there, is there? Mm. The police said, you know, he shouldn't have taken it. He's a bad boy. Yeah, but the hall manager didn't like it. So we never mm. done something yet again. Going back to you working for All Star again after the BWF, what actually was the role that you took up? Most nights, or even most because I was working the holiday parts again for Brian, uh-huh. it was working with Robbie Dynamite. So Robbie and Kid Cool were coming into the business. They taught themselves, I think. There was a guy in Stoke that had a gym, and I don't think he was much good as a trainer, to be fair, and he was teaching them all the American stuff. James Mason would normally go on with Kid Cool, Mm-hmm. And I would go on with Robbie. And just the same as I learned on the job, they were learning on the job as well, trying to help them improve what they were doing. I don't take any credit for anything that went on after it, but I did as much as I could. Robbie was not the easiest person in the world to teach. He didn't really listen, and he got lost quite a bit in matches. You could do the same move three or four times a week, and he would still get lost on what was actually happening. But I think that was because I was taking him away from what he wanted to do, what he liked to do. And maybe if I'd geared it more towards him doing his dives over the top rope and he's jumping off the top rope, he might have been buying into it a bit more. I seen an interview with Brian Dixon that said that they brought in a fresh life in his company and a breath of fresh air. I think he offended quite a few people when he said that. There was a lot of people that had stopped by him and these kids had come in and they were just cheap as you like. And have a look on my YouTube. I've put up a tag match that they did and you can judge for yourself what they were like at that time. Uh-huh. You know, they were green as you like and they were being forced into being top of the bill. You know, and they weren't ready for anything like that. They weren't good enough their whole performance wasn't good enough to be in that type of match for them. I think they did okay for Brian in the end, but I think you have to look and think, what is the quality of the shows then compared to what the quality of the shows were previous? Yeah. And doing okay for Brian isn't the same as being an amazing show. Dean married Letitia, which I am absolutely amazed about. Brian made it no secret that he never, ever wanted Letitia to marry a wrestler. He mm-hmm. had seen her marrying some executive and having a good life. And when I heard that Dean had got married, I just could not believe it. I've probably never been as flabbergasted in this job as that time. I couldn't understand it. I still don't understand it. Letitia was a good-looking girl when she was younger. Really good-looking. She was like six foot two, six foot three, long blonde hair. You know, she could have had a pick. And Dean's like five foot four. You know, 
and he had no personality at that time. He might have grown into being a personality as he's grown older, but he just was a, like a daft young boy. And I still can't believe that Brian settled for it. Love is strange. Uh-huh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, as people look at my marriage and think, why has that worked for 21 years? But it just does. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Michelle's quite a bit younger than me, but she's the boss. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, she runs me. She is the boss. That time working at All Star, how did that come to an end? Brian asked me to do the tribute. He wanted me to do Scotty Too Hottie, which I wasn't very keen on. I didn't really look that much like him, but I grew my hair, dyed it blonde again, and grew the daft moustache and stuff like that. But I'm not a dancer. So the worm and his little dance routine at the end, uh-huh. I actually had to pay a choreographer to help me put all that together and teach me how to do that type of stuff. You know, it's not in my comfort range. Right. That type of stuff. But I did it. And then uh, we did a show at Croydon and about three days later, I get a phone call from Brian and he said, I've had a letter from a punter at Croydon who has written to complain about the worm. And I'm like, she's what? Yeah, she's complaining that you didn't put any effort in and your worm was shit. And I'm like, seriously? You're phoning me up about that, Brian? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to let you go. And I'm like, you're letting me go because a punt has written to you complaining that I didn't do a dance move properly. Right, okay, that's fine. So, yep, sacked on the spot. So there's 20-odd days of my date sheet gone. So no money, coming back in again, stuck. So I went to Jake and started working for Jake then, uh-huh. doing his little tours and stuff. And his shows were okay. You know what I mean? LOD and stuff like that that we were doing. Me and Blondie against LOD and Johnny Kidd. And I worked with Jake's lad as well, doing the rest of the matches for him and stuff. But I then found out that I got sacked not because of the letter not uh-huh. because a punter complained. Brian was bringing back Robbie Brookside. And Robbie Brookside and I had parted in unfavourable terms years and years prior. And this was before the tributes when Shaky's run the shows. He believed that I was in the shows with Shaky and he got screwed for money out of Shaky. The actual fact that he was sat in the car with me as well with me trying to get in touch with Shaky because he'd left me at Greenock with no money and cancelled the show and I had to get us back down to Liverpool and he still maintained that I knew what was happening and stuff. And I didn't. I yeah. honestly didn't know anything about it. So we went our separate ways. We never ever worked together on shows anymore. We were always separated. But instead of Brian coming to me like a man and saying, look, I want to bring Robbie back. I've had my run with you. I don't want any trouble in the dressing room, which there wouldn't have been with me. You know, I'm not bothered about Robbie. He went backhanded about it. And he's since apologised to me about it. So the background about Robbie. So I married a ring rat when I was in my 20s. I married a girl who I shouldn't have married. You know, 
I was warned about it. My friends came to me and it was one of these stupid things like it was like a rib that went wrong. So her mum and dad were divorced. We had phoned them both up and said, we're going to get married. We'll start planning it. Her mum said, if he's coming, I'm not coming. Her dad said, if she's going, I'm not going. So I went to Leeds Registry Office and applied for a special licence. And we were married 72 hours later. So literally within six weeks of getting with this woman, we were married. 100% car crash was never, ever going to work. I knew her background. I'd known her since she was young. And then when I went off to work for Max, we parted. But I knew what she was. And foolishly, I bought into it. And we ended up getting divorced. Is that any surprise? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it was bound to happen. But I have a, a daughter with her who I regret immensely not being part of her life. Uh-huh. But it wasn't meant to be. And I've come to terms with that a long time ago. That yeah. wasn't meant to be. But when I started working for Brian again, we got in touch. My ex-wife and I got in touch. There's a whole big story about why she got in touch. She got in touch and she said to me, can you give me Robbie's number? I didn't have Robbie's number at that time, so I got Robbie's number for her, sent her the number. The next thing I hear, her and Robbie are an item and he's moving in. Hence why when Robbie comes to work for Dixon, Dixon doesn't want me in the same venue because he's now living in the house with my daughter that I don't get to see. Right. You know, and let's just be clear, I don't get to see my daughter, not because I'm a child molester, not because I'm a wife beater, like people will say. I don't get to see her because my ex-wife is a manipulative, horrible person. Robbie and her got married. A lot of people decided that they wanted to be with Robbie and not speak to me. Politics again in wrestling. I have nothing to offer them. Mm-hmm. He has his connections to the WWE. Yeah. And like everything in this job, it's all about who you can kiss their ass and yeah. get on with, you know. So people blackballed me because of that, you know. And that's fine. I've got over it ages ago. I don't care. These people, as you said, you make acquaintances in this job and you move on. Uh-huh. But yeah, at the time, it soured me what went on. And I was more upset with Brian that he couldn't have come to me and just said, look, I don't want this type of trouble at my show. You've had your run with me. I'm going to bring him in. It's a business. I understand that. Yeah. You know, and I'd have been fine with it. But he made me feel as if it was my fault again. Yeah, just that thing of being upfront and honest with people. Yeah, yeah. He'd said to me that I wasn't good enough. When he said that letter had come in, that makes you feel that you're no good at doing your job. Uh-huh. And as an entertainer, that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. And I went to work with Jake, and unfortunately my run with Jake came to an end because I'm another ring rat. <laughs> <laughs> as you can tell, I've got a terrible, terrible thing with these ring rats. There was a girl called Terry from Ipswich who I had knocked about with when she was younger, when we'd done the Norwich shows. She became a ring rat and then got involved in the job. 
And then on Jake's shows, she eventually got on with Jake's son and it caused a bit of conflict. She didn't want me on the shows because she didn't want her past being thrown back at her. And to be honest, I wasn't interested in her past. I had my own crap to deal with, you know, Mm -hmm. but I can see why she wanted me gone because you know yourself, I'm not one to shy away from a conflict. (laughs) You know, so I had words with Dave's lad and I said, I've had enough, I'm leaving. I went to Jake, said, just pay me what you owe me. And I jumped the train back down to Leeds and that was it. That was me, I'd had enough of it again. And I moved back up here. Yeah, I was just going to say, is that when you moved back up? Yeah, that's I moved back up here. And to be honest, it's been the best time of my life ever. Mm-hmm. You know, because Michelle and I, we have a really good life together. We've been through some tough times. You know, she was there with me when Brian sacked me for no reason. And the money just disappeared, so I couldn't afford to pay for anything. And when you're building your life about what's happening in 30 days time and it suddenly gets cut away from you it's yeah. very hard to recover from that mm-hmm. but we've done it you know we have two 14 night cruises a year now uh-huh. we have a, a nice life yeah. as i said i've never made any money in wrestling it's always ended up costing me money so that was part two of my interview with spinner mckenzie I'm very pleased to say that Spinner will be back on the show again very soon to discuss lots more subjects. So do keep an eye out on our social media pages for details of when that will be happening. So, it's now time for... Quote of the Week! I say! Yes, it's Quote of the Week. And this week's Quote of the Week is... Excuse me... Do you know where the Regency Hotel is? Last week, I started to talk a little bit about CSF and a magical little place in West Wiltshire called Melksham. Melksham was always one of my two favourite places to wrestle, purely because of the heat that can be generated there. And as a villain, I would absolutely thrive on that. This week, I'm going to be talking about the first ever CSF show in Melksham in November 1999. It wasn't the first ever CSF show full stop, but it was the first one in Melksham under the banner of CSF. We'd previously done one there in August of that same year for a promotion called CCW, or Commonwealth Championship Wrestling to give them their full name, which was where I'd first met Natty. But November 99 was the first CSF show in Melksham. The show had started late because the crew bringing the ring from Portsmouth had either left too late or run into some problems on the way or something and they didn't get there until the time the doors were meant to be opening. Once they arrived it was a real community effort to get the ring in and built as quickly as possible and we had punters and pretty much everyone we could find pitching in to get stuff done. Because of a late start, the show also finished late, which meant that by the time we got finished and had our post-show curry at the Reefer Tandoori round the corner from the assembly hall, time was really cracking on. On this occasion there was myself, 
the previously mentioned Colin Highlander Mackay, Lionheart Mike Thomas, and Manuel, who wrestled as the man from the dark side, Vlad Dracul, under a vampire gimmick. There may have been a few others with us as well, I can't quite remember now. Both Mike and Manuel were characters. I'm still in touch with Mike to this day, but sadly I lost touch with Manuel years ago now. If by any remote chance he's either listening to this, or if anyone else listening knows him and has his contact details, please do get in touch as I would absolutely love to hear from him again. This was the first time we'd been to the reefer and they were very excited to have us there, with the owner having recognised us from the show, which he'd just come back from. With it being late, we weren't sure if they would serve us, as it was getting very close to closing time, but they basically gave us the curry house equivalent of a lock-in, and set us up at a big table in the middle of the restaurant. Like the dickheads we were, we soon set about making the big white napkins on the table into makeshift Ku Klux Klan hats and started referring to each other as Grand Wizard Conroy and Grand Wizard Thomas, etc. We'd been sat waiting for a little while as the staff were busy locking up, etc. as it was now past closing time. We did have some entertainment while we waited though as two middle-aged drunk women turned up at the window flashing their saggy tits and arses all over the place. Much like John Short plonking his false teeth down on the table at the services that time, I'm surprised we weren't put off getting food completely. We were all fairly hungry, however, so we set about getting the waiter's attention to get some menus and order. Well, I say we set about getting his attention. Mike actually took care of that for us by just shouting, Oi! as loud as he could, which, to be fair, worked quite well, and brought the waiter over to the table. After we'd asked for the menus, slightly more politely than Mike, I hasten to add, the waiter brought them across, and Mike, again, never the most diplomatic or patient of individuals, asked him if he could turn the fan off. The table we were at was situated right underneath a massive fan, which didn't look especially stable. In fact, it looked like it might fall down off the ceiling at any time. When I say Mike asked him to turn the fan off, though, he he didn't say, Excuse me, would you, would you mind turning the fan down or off, please? It was more a case of, Oi, turn that fan off! And when the waiter had the gall to ask why, Mike simply replied, Because it's fucking dangerous, that's why! Anyway, after we finished our food and thanked the staff at the reefer not only for the meal but for putting up with us we went off to find our hotels Mike and Colin were staying at the King's Arms across the road from the assembly hall whereas Manuel and me had been booked into another place a little bit further along the road called the Regency Hotel we got to the Regency Hotel and found that the front door had been left unlocked So we went in and saw two keys lying on the table in the dining room. Surmising that they must have been left there for us, we went upstairs to our respective rooms and found that there was already other people's stuff in the two rooms, 
including a large bag of various bizarre-looking um, implements that had been left in the bathroom of my room, containing, amongst other things, a huge fluorescent pink dildo. Don't get me wrong, Melksham was a strange place, but realising that even in Melksham it probably wasn't customary for a hotel to leave a bag of sex toys as a welcoming gift, we regrouped on the landing and had a good laugh about what we'd just encountered. We went back downstairs so we could try and figure out what the situation was, but the place was deserted, so we had no choice but to ring the service bell. We waited, and when that brought no response, we tried phoning the place instead to see if that would work. That, unfortunately, didn't bring any breakthrough either, so we tried the bell again. And again. And again. And again and eventually ended up pressing and holding it continuously for about a minute, until someone finally appeared. What greeted us as the door opened was a sight I don't think I'll ever forget, as long as I live. As the owner of the hotel came staggering through, looking like he'd just awoken from a hundred year slumber, complete with a candle, cat, long stripy pyjamas and a nightcap, he looked like Wee Willy Winky, and it was one of those situations where me and Manuel just had a silent, unspoken understanding that, under no circumstances should we even think about looking at each other, and we both had to look down at the ground for about five seconds to compose ourselves and keep from bursting out laughing. Once we'd composed ourselves and spoken to the owner, it turned out that the door had actually been left unlocked and the keys left on the table for a wedding party who were coming in late. It was already gone midnight at this point and it turned out that we weren't even booked into the Regency Hotel as the owner had absolutely no record of a booking for us. So after apologising for waking the owner up we headed back across to the hall to see if there was anyone still there who could help clear up what had happened. Before we did that though, spotting an opportunity for mischief, we waited until Wee Willy Winky had retreated back to his parlour and I sneaked back in, went back up to the room and grabbed the aforementioned enormous pink dildo, leaving it on the dining room table next to the room keys before sneaking back out the front door again. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when the wedding party came in and thought the owner had been going through their stuff while they were out. Luckily, when we got back to the hall, Natty was still there and was just packing the last of the stuff away before heading off home. We told him what had happened and he realised he'd ballsed up and given us the name of the wrong hotel. As it turned out, we were actually booked in at another guest house at the other end of the town called Long Hope. At that point, just as we were pondering how the hell we would get there, Mike and Colin turned back up. So Natty asked Mike if he would drop him off at his place in Whitley, just outside Melksham, and then drop us off at the guest house afterwards. Mike agreed, and we set off on our merry way to Whitley to drop Natty off, with four foot three Colin in the front, and me, Natty and Manuel, all six feet or over, and not the smallest of people girth-wise, all squashed up in the back. We dropped Natty off, and after he gave us directions on how to get back into Melksham, and more specifically to the hotel, 
We were soon on our way again. After a few minutes, we were back in Melksham Town Centre. And a minute or so later, after following Natty's directions, we were back at the bloody Regency Hotel, where the fun had all started in the first place. Mike was starting to get a bit annoyed at this point, and we phoned Natty again to ask for directions from the Regency down to Longhope. You know, where we were actually fucking staying. Following Natty's directions, we were soon completely and utterly lost, ending up somewhere out in the middle of the countryside, on a completely dark road with nothing but fields all around us. We must have driven around for about half an hour before we even came across another vehicle, never mind a road sign or anything to tell us where we were. We eventually came across another car and managed to flag them down to ask for directions. It was more fun before Satnav. Luckily, or maybe not in this case, it just happened to be the local band who had earlier performed at the show. The conversation basically went like this. Excuse me, do you know where the Regency Hotel is? Er, uh, yes. Well, how about fucking telling us where it fucking is then? Fuck's sake. Me and Manuel lost it at this point and absolutely burst out laughing, which then set Colin off as well. I don't think any of us were particularly popular with Mike at this point, and we had visions of having to walk back to Melksham. We finally managed to get some directions and sense out of the band, and we set off on our way back into Melksham again. Within about 20 minutes, we were back in Melksham Town Centre, again. Within another two minutes, we were also back where we first started, again. It was then that we, and Mike, had realised that, in his fit of anger, he'd accidentally asked them for directions to the fucking Regency Hotel, instead of Long Hope. Mike completely lost it at this point sitting outside the Regency, in the car, and just shouting "Fuck!" at the top of his voice for about 10 seconds, which of course set all of us off again. So, about an hour after we first started, we were still no closer to getting to the hotel. Mike was getting even more wound up at this point, and started driving round Melksham Town Centre at about 95 miles an hour, screeching up next to people in the street and shouting Oi! Where's Long Hope? And if they didn't answer within about a millisecond of the question being asked just shouting Ah! Fuck you then! and driving off before repeating the process another 20 yards down the road. Me and Manuel were absolutely pissing ourselves laughing at this stage but trying our hardest also not to make any noise as I think we actually would have ended up walking if Mike had heard us this time. Colin was also trying desperately not to laugh in the front of the car. Eventually, we managed to find someone who both knew where Long Hope was and was quick enough in his answer to avoid being shouted at. And after a few more minutes, we were finally, finally there. We said our thank yous and goodbyes to Mike and Colin and went off to wake up another Melksham hotelier at some ungodly hour of the morning. Was it any wonder that 
A few years later, Natty gave us our accommodation details, accompanied by the words, Right, fucking behave yourselves. This is the last hotel in Melcham I can put you up in. Much more about that to come in future weeks, though. We got checked into our room and had a natter before getting our heads down for the night. In the morning, I woke up to find Manuel filling his bags with everything from the room he could possibly fit in there. And then some. We're not just talking about nicking a towel here. He was taking the towels, the bog rolls, the pillows, tea, coffee, hot chocolate, cups, and at one point even tried to get the duvets in there. He was even on about asking Colin or Mike to come round with the car, so he could lower the telly down out of the window with some bed sheets tied round it. He was some character. So much fun to be around in those early days of Melcham. After we headed back up to Bath to get our respective trains home, I realised while I was sitting on the platform waiting that I still had the hotel keys, having forgotten to give them back to the owner when we left. I'd always intended to go and take them back when we next went to Melksham, but we never ever got time, and I've still got them somewhere, over 20 years later. Strange thing to keep as a keepsake, I know, but at least it was less than Manuel had taken from the room. Next week I'll be talking about another time in Melksham. In fact, I'll be talking about the infamous night of the Melksham riot in 2002. You really won't want to miss that one. So, as we approach the end of another show, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Week Yes, it's Song of the Week. And this week's Song of the Week is a track which was played before the start of the shows during the BWF run we talked with Spinner McKenzie about earlier. So without further ado, here it is. Screaming all night, ready to rumble and we're looking for a fight. The boys are ready, so we're gonna get busy with moves so fast, we're gonna make you dizzy. People out there, you better take your seat. We are gonna knock you off your feet. Look out for more, cause we are the sensation. We are number one, we are the Federation. The Federation. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. This show is about to begin. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the BWF are proud to bring to you tonight the most exciting, exclusive entertainment, courtesy of the UK's premier promoters, the British Wrestling Federation.
well. That's just about it for this week. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And thank you also to my amazing guest, Spinner McKenzie. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the good word and continue to help us grow by sharing and recommending us to others. You can find all the necessary information on our Facebook and Twitter pages, and we will be posting updates there about upcoming episodes and guests. So, until next time, this is Carl Stewart, signing off and saying goodbye and thank you.